WDEV in Waterbury. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, November 17th, and today on the program, the future of transportation. By that I mean scooters and bikes, electric ones, all over the world. Fad or revolution? We'll speak with a founder of one of the leading companies in the world. At 10 a.m., we have a return engagement with Bob Ney, our Washington, D.C. expert for an update on Israel and Hamas, Biden, and China. We'll ask him about the change in position by Becca, our Congresswoman Becca Ballant from promoting a cease, uh, from promoting a uh, cessation, cess, cessation of hostilities versus what she's calling for now, which is a ceasefire. Does it make a difference? What's the point? Uh, we'll ask Bob about that. At 10.15, it's back to Burlington for a discussion of public safety. Seven Days reporter Courtney Lambden will join us to give us an update about shootings and the like. And at 10.30, it's windows, special windows, and how Central Vermont craftsman Chris, Chris Pratt makes them in all sorts of special energy-efficient ways. And, of course, we're not moving on from the passing of our friend and mentor, Ken Squire. I thought a lot about whether to devote the entire show to Ken today or to move ahead. I think he would have wanted us to move ahead. But we're going to talk to him. We're going to talk about him anyway, and we welcome your calls, 244-1777, about all these topics. My email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. But first, I did not know Ken Squire very well. I knew him from political activities as the owner of this station and Thunder Road. I've still never been there. And, uh, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Greg Titus through the wall, who's through the window, who's shaking his head. I was a guest on this show once when Ken was guest hosting, filling in for the great Mark Johnson. I remember the issue was the legalization of marijuana, but it could have been anything. Race cars, Buster the Wonder Dog, sports, Bernie Sanders. It didn't really matter with Ken. I was petrified and tongue-tied. But there he was behind the same microphone I'm using today, so smooth, so at home, so comfortable. He had done this a thousand times, totally at home in this studio. Tonight at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, the Montpelier Bridge newspaper is celebrating its 30th anniversary. I'm moderating a panel with podcaster Erica Heilman and VT Digger CEO Sky Barsh about the importance of local journalism in preserving our democracy. 30 years for a newspaper. That's a long time. And at 10.15, as I said, I'm talking to a seven days reporter about issues in Burlington. Seven days has been around a long time, too, more than 20 years. If you put it all together, seven days, VT Digger, the Montpelier Bridge an independent podcaster, and WDEV, that's a lot of local journalism. That's a lot of politics, a lot of talk, a lot of discussion, a lot of phone calls, research, sometimes even controversy. In the end, it's community. It's a democracy. It is what we are talking about tonight at the Montpelier Bridge Gala. It's what we do here on Vermont Viewpoint and at WDEV, trying to live in a community that works, especially while other communities are fraying at the edges. I can't help but believe that Ken, Ken Squire helped make all this happen. 
The young journalists in Vermont today didn't know Ken Squire, but they are his successors, carrying on a tradition of caring for Vermont and its democracy, making sure that it continues. Flawed, slow, frustrating. But in the end, every person who ever comes on this show or this station, whoever came on this show over the past many decades, is carrying on Ken Squire's philosophy and traditions. And now it falls to the rest of us to go on learning Ken's lessons and applying them to protect and renew our democracy again and again, over and over, every day. We'll be right back. We are back and we're talking about the future of transportation with Andrew Savage. One of the founding, on the founding team of a company called Lime, a shared transportation company with business in 250 plus global cities. He was a solar industry executive at the Williston based All Earth Renewables and prior to that worked for now Senator Peter Welch when he was the, uh, the president of the Senate in Montpelier. Now we're going back and later on Capitol Hill for con- then Congressman Welch. He grew up in Callis. And he's a U32 grad. How about that? That's bad. Titus butt through the windows of Harwood, guys. Oh, no. Yeah, we got to be careful. <laughs> we got to be careful. So before we get – welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. So before we get to my favorite topic, which is getting rid of every car on the road and uh, making it all just bike lanes, that will inflame our more conservative listeners. Um you knew Ken Squire a little bit. A little bit, yeah. You know, I grew tell up. Us. Yeah, I, tell well, us. I grew up with DEV on all the time, as many listeners probably know. You know, kids used to hover by WDEV at six o'clock in the morning to figure out if school was canceled. That was probably the most important role of DEV at the time. But you know, we would take trips to the dump and we'd listen to music to go to the dump by and we listened to Red Sox games incessantly. My uh, dad and uncle actually helped found the, or they founded the Red Sox fantasy camp. And so as kids, we would love hearing the ads for the Sox exchange fantasy camp on WDEV as okay. well. So the, the radio station is coming to a halt. Greg oh. Titus through the window. It's like it's, his jaw is dropped. So keep going. Um, that's all I've got. But I just, yeah. and so when I was working for, for Peter Welch, we would always stop in to visit with Ken before coming on probably at the time it was Mark Johnson's show or another yeah. show here or there. And, you know, I just remember him. I, I knew him as just a giant and, yeah. you know, I was in my twenties and so was always in awe of just his stature, his, the, what he'd created and the presence that he had in this community. So, you know, I, I really appreciated your tribute to him. And I think, you know, we are all sort of in, um, appreciation of the role in this community that he played. So, um, you know, it's great to be on this show today just by chance. You know, let me ask you a question before we get into your business. We may never get there. And we that's might fine. never get there. Because I ask people this question on the show all the time. So Ken Squire is a, is a, is a person of another era when Vermont was a different place. Uh, you know, the stereotypes, right? Dairy farms, hard work, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Are we losing that? Um, or are we, and you, you know, you're, you saw it from the political world and now the technology world, or are we just emerging into 
in some ways a better kind of place. There's more technology, but um, you know, it's it's tempting to say it's all great the way Ken grew up in a, in an old school Waterbury. Uh, and now it's all gone to hell. The politics are terrible. Trump's terrible. Uh, we're all on our phones all day long. Um, and I just like to ask this question about like, how did we get here? And is it better or worse or just different? Yeah. I mean, my initial thought there is that I probably bridged those two worlds in sort of my generation where there was a lot of that old school legacy community that existed and now it's quite different of course and i think it's pretty easy to be nostalgic for the past right that's just kind of a natural tendency of people and humanity i think um i think it certainly is worth acknowledging it is pretty different and i think there's definitely some things in the way or some ills that i'd love to see go away things like you know the access of phones and how much it drives our lives, et cetera. And even as a technologist that thinks that a lot of this technology is going to be what helps save us in a lot of ways. So, you know, I think it's, I think there is a nostalgic nature of the past that I think is a real value that we want to hang on to. And then I think we have to look to the future of how do we do the best we can and improve the best we can with what we've got and hang on to the history that really is valuable to us. And one follow-up question because I, this happens to me a lot. We have this conversation, you know, at a certain lofty level, but then we, whether it's my consulting practice or your startup practice technology, you go into your weekly staff meeting and you don't talk about these lofty things, these lofty goals. You talk about the realities Mm. of commerce and capitalism and customer acquisition and cutting costs. And if you got to lay people off, you lay them off. And if you, you know, I mean, huge layoffs in, in the technology sector over the last year. Um, there's a harsh reality to business that you have experienced. Um, that doesn't allow for us talking about the lofty goals of uh, democracy and right you know right talk about that what's that world like well i mean i think about the the alternative world which is i try to bring it down and remember some of those things that are really of value when i tell stories to the kids at night for example like that's when you can tell stories out like you know hiding in the bushes when my parents were visiting and you know an older couple in callus and we got the hose out and we'd spray wind spray through windows when they'd come flying by like they you know hearing stories of 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 that i think brings you back to that level of grounding but no i think the the realities of of business and and you know being out for a couple years when we started the company and now i'm of course back here in vermont um it was it was brutal i mean the bay area as we were talking about before the show got started is a rough and tumble place obviously a lot of great comes out of it but um there's a lot of ills that go on there we had to raise an enormous amount of money we spent an enormous amount of money sometimes very poorly Um, i actually remember my dad um frugal vermonter you know Yankee through and through. Right. When you know, we we end up with a, a billion dollar valuation, which I say with a level of uh, humor in some ways. He looked at me and said, "You know, they they call them unicorns, 
And he said, wait, wait, but Andrew, isn't a unicorn just a company that's overvalued and wildly unprofitable? And I sort of laughed because it was a major milestone for the company. Everyone's celebrating it. And you know what? His words actually meant a lot more. It meant nothing. I mean, it's all paper. It's all, you know, fictitious. And then the pandemic comes and, you know, we could talk about that, but it all goes away in, in a lot of ways. So I just take, take a lot of, I'm humbled by, his words and sort of the community back to the initial conversation that comes before us because I think it's what keeps us grounded. Yeah. Okay. The company is called Lime. Tell us about it. Yeah. So we started the company in 2017 as a bike share company. Um, many people might be familiar if you go to New York or other parts of the country where people have the ability to rent uh, bikes. Um, we ended up introducing both an e-bike and an e-scooter. And over the last seven years, have scaled the company to operate in over 30 countries around the globe, 250 major cities. We operate primarily in North America and in Europe, a little bit in the Middle, in the middle East. And essentially, we harness the essentially the power of an iPhone or a smartphone where people can go up to a vehicle that we have. They can scan it. It unlocks, and then they pay by the minute. And, you know, our goal is to really think about how do we change the perception of and the actual reality of transportation in cities and how do we decarbonize cities and make it easier for people to, instead of hailing an Uber for that one mile trip down the, you know, few blocks, how can you actually take a much more affordable typically and uh, much cleaner form of transportation. So I know you had a recent experience in Washington, D.C., and I'd love to hear about that, so but that's I'm, the gist of the business. I'm known in my family as an early adopter I love that. of technology. When did you uh, download the app? That's my question. Well, <laughs> I started this journey probably five years ago, maybe even longer, with the bird scooter in D.C., mm -hmm. and it had tiny little wheels, so every little bump was jarring. Now you've developed... These new scooters have bigger wheels. It's a much uh, smoother ride. Right. I downloaded the app about 10 days ago uh, and went from, oh, sort of the Chevy Chase Circle in D.C., uh, sort of over to Friendship Heights and um, sort of all around D.C. I, my favorite bookstore, Politics and Prose, I had to go over there, so get newspapers and books and things. Uh, it was great. Now, when I got to the Maryland line – it stopped. We can talk about that in a, in a second. But I guess my question is, that's the purpose, right? Is to is to get people around uh, without getting in a car or getting in an Uber. Yeah, I mean that, that's part of the purpose. In the United States, one out of every three of the trips that people take on a Lime prevents a car trip, an Uber trip, a personal car trip, a taxi. That's that's big. I mean we've we've delivered um, over 500 million rides since the company started. And so if you do the math, that's 125 million car trips prevented um, through the scooter and bike trips. And so that's something we're really proud of because that actually moves the needle in an appreciable way. Yeah. But we also think about it as people enjoying a city better. They think about it as making it more livable. But if you think about the dominance of cars in our urban environments. Now, we're not talking about downtown Waterbury here necessarily, but, yeah. you know, the big cities that we're in, you know, cars sit idle 96% 
of their lifetimes, which means that they need a lot of parking spaces. Yeah. And we talk about, for example, the inaffordability of housing. What if we, instead of having to house cars to sit waiting for us for that occasional use, what if we actually housed people in those cities so that they could live and work and make friendships within an area they wanted to live and we could actually turn parking structures into housing. I mean, that's such kind of a novel concept, but that's, you know, not a century ago, cars didn't have that level of dominance in our cities. And so in many ways, um, we think a lot about how can we help cities rethink their relationship with cars? How can we help people rethink their relationship with mobility and actually probably enjoy getting around their cities better because they are on an e-bike or an e-scooter. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that shows that people on e-bikes and e-scooters spend more in their local economy rather than get home and hop on Amazon. People will stop into the shop and grab something on their way home because it's so accessible. And so, you know, we work with businesses and thinking about, all right, what does the future of the city look like to them as well? So I think there's a lot of opportunity in thinking about how can you adjust your relationship with cars in the urban environments that we're operating in. Tell us how it works. Uh, there's an app, etc. So just how do you actually do it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite simple. I mean, in the app, just like many of the apps that folks will be cust- accustomed to, you have a payment on there, right? You might have a credit card or a debit card on your on the app, and you walk up to a scooter or a bike, um, or you can look in the app and see on the map where the closest scooter and bike is and, and walk to it, and you essentially scan a QR code with a camera. The bike or scooter will unlock, and then you go, and you ride as long as you want, and then when you're ready to park, you close, you know, you essentially click end ride, and then you take a picture of where you've parked. That's one of the mechanisms we've used to help clean up the parking of the of the so, scooters and bikes. So in the early days, yes, uh, in the Wild West days of this, it was more fun <laughs> because you were a guerrilla revolutionary right. going all around the city and you could just leave it anywhere. And that led to a, a reaction by government regulators and others, exactly. a, a backlash. To and we, yeah, and we've done what we, <laughs> we, we can to help both onboard riders and educate them on what the do's and don'ts are of, of, of what used to be called dockless bikes. And now yeah. it's just, we call it micro mobility. It's kind of a little wonky. I think easy, bike, bikes and scooters is the easiest way to refer to it. But we've, we've done things like onboarding riders in a way that gives them the education they need. We have people take a picture of their parking job and we can sort of run that through actually AI and look at are, are people parking the correct way. And we also have these geofences, which sort of suggest to people where they can and can't park in certain markets. So we do have to be responsive to what governments are asking us to do, because in the end, we're a service that's using the, um, you know, the public right of way to to operate. Um, but what I will say is there have been a ton of studies that show that actually cars are uh, just as bad at parkers as, uh, as bikes and scooters, and they have far larger consequences. So, you know, we're doing what we can, and, and we feel pretty good about the progress that we've made. Um, so... Yeah, tell me about that. I tell us about the geofencing. I was on a scooter in DC, and when I got to getting closer to Capitol Hill, it stopped. And I said, "Oh, that's a security thing that you guys have agreed to do to keep people away from the Capitol." 
Yeah, sometimes it's a slow zone where we want people actually to go slower because it's a congested area. We can use the geofences for that. And sometimes it's a no park zone where, um, you know, they may not want us to park right on the National Mall, for example. So we're asking riders, forcing riders to park just off of the National Mall. And you want us to park, yeah, and you want us to put it next to a bike rack or, you know. We try. We try. You try. Okay, question. I did my ride. Uh, do you have to, there's a lock, there's a, a, a lock so that it doesn't get stolen. Well, now you're getting into some of the idiosyncrasies of, of the industry. Some cities ask for us to include a lock. Usually in most cities around the world, the hub of the wheel, the rear wheel locks. Uh-huh. And that may, that prevents anyone from moving the vehicle or the scooter. In some markets, they actually ask us, like Chicago or, or in DC, to include like a little, like a traditional like tether lock attached yep. to the vehicle, where you get a code to unlock it, and your or automatically unlocks. And that is in part some markets that want us to push folks to park closer to bike racks or next to lamp posts or things like that. So it's it's not parked right in the middle of the sidewalk. That's sort of why they do it. It's not extra security. Okay. It's really right. just about government uh, relations. And to end and to end my ride, I gotta put yep. the thing the lock back together. Exactly. Okay. In theory, yeah. I didn't do that. Yeah, you probably are okay. I was threatened with you know a twenty five dollar fine or penalty. We'll see if we can help you out with that. <laughs> um, uh, th- this is – we talked about the Wild West of this business. There's a lot of companies doing this. I would think it would be hugely competitive. How does Lime distinguish itself from other companies? Yeah, it is hugely competitive. There was a large amount of capital that went into the industry in 2017 and 2018. There's been a pretty significant sort of sugaring off of the companies that have made it. And there's still a, a number of companies that are operating. And you know, in part – um, the vehicle design is something that you've acknowledged that I appreciate you acknowledging. We spent a lot of time trying to produce the best hardware and have a bike and a scooter that really feels good to riders, that's safer, that um, has can go the distance that riders want it to go. Yeah. And so that's some investment that we've made. That's one of the examples. Our guest is Andrew Savage. He's one of the founders of the, a micro-mobility company. You're talking about scooters and bikes, electric scooters and bikes in cities around the world, uh, which I partake in all the time. I know my son in uh, New York City rides a city bike with no helmet, and it drives me absolutely insane. Um, so we talk about it, and he ignores me, as most children do. But uh, And I, I just love riding a scooter, but... It's da- it can be dangerous, not, not properly done, and my only uh, the only thing I can think about is we need bike lanes everywhere, and yet uh, on, there's a huge controversy about putting bike lanes and new lighting on Connecticut Avenue, one of the main thoroughfares in D.C. Hugely controversial. People want their cars, and I guess my question for you is. Where do scooters and bikes fit into this car-centric culture that we have created? And is there any chance that they can be a, a central factor rather than a, a sideline? Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're hitting on it that having protected bike lanes or having space 
does really help with the proliferation of or the acceptance of the mode of transportation. A lot of people don't want to ride and be tangling with with cars and trucks and and what have you. You know, it's interesting with the pandemic, we saw almost overnight a recognition of the importance of of what we call micro-mobility, scooters and bikes, um, because people loved that it was socially distant. They didn't want to get on buses. They maybe didn't own a car, didn't want to get on the train. And cities really overnight, we went from sort of being these um, sort of disruptors in cities to actually being declared in many markets an essential service because people were seeing it as a key way to get around. And one thing that we do is we actually share with the cities that we operate in the data of where people are riding. And sometimes you even see someone's cruising along in a very logical uh, aggregate number of people are cruising along in a very logical way, and then they zigzag over to another street. Why are they doing that? It's because they found a safer way or they're getting over to a bike lane, et et cetera. And so we like to share that with cities so that they can actually – improve the infrastructure. And that is such a, a catalyzing impact on, on people feeling comfortable getting out there. But, you know, even maybe to bring it down to an even more local level, you know, I think finding alternative ways of getting around is, just, I mean, one that's been in our DNA for centuries and, you know, we just are constantly innovating in that regard. Um, you know, there were electric cars back in the 1910s and 1920s that we in many ways abandoned for a few generations. But I was just talking to a high school friend of mine whose parents live in Middlesex and they're in their 70s and they just got two e-bikes and it's probably a four or five mile trip into Montpelier and they, instead of taking their car now, actually get up on the bike cruise down to town and because of the e-assist that comes along with those bikes they can cruise back to to their home from Montpelier without breaking a huge sweat getting a little exercise getting a little fresh air and i think that is as exciting as hearing about people in paris or london or madrid riding our bikes and scooters like it's kind of obvious that someone might do that in uh in one of these major global cities but i just love hearing about it in a local way of people really using this technology to get around and do so in a way that gets them out of their car you know uh one of the joys for me is you mentioned getting off of the main thoroughfare and because riding down Connecticut Avenue in DC uh, can be a little bit of a nerve wracking experience, but popping into neighborhoods on, on back sure. streets, you're right. You're going slower. You're, you're looking at architecture. You're stopping at a park. Uh, you're seeing a city in a whole new way. I'm discovering parks and little hideaway places in DC that I've never discovered before thanks to the scooter yeah and, and you know a lot of folks use the, the the service when they're on vacation you know as because it's a way of getting around that allows them to see things and be a little more nimble if you see something you want to stop and and look at you don't have to go navigate finding a parking spot just pull over well it's easy right yeah the whole okay so let's go there uh my friend Karen, who runs the toy store, the Woodbury Mountain Toys in uh, downtown Montpelier, I'm a big advocate of closing State Street from Elm to the intersection, or at least as my backup plan, closing Langdon Street um, to traffic. And Karen says to me, my customers have to park right in front of the store or they will not come in. 
Um, and I'm like, Karen, come on. We argue about this all the time. And I'm, and I say to the guys at Bookspieler, close the street. Your, your revenues will go up 25% because the foot traffic will, will increase. And their response is, if they can't park on Langdon Street, they're not going to come to my store. So how do we deal with that? Well, I'll let you deal with Karen. Yeah. And I will share that, I mean, there are cities around the globe, Madrid, Oslo, Copenhagen, you go down the list, that are cutting traffic from downtown cores. Yeah. And what the evidence is, is that that actually boosts business. And so it's really, really hard when you're talking to a business owner to say, hey, we should close this down and turn it into cobblestone and people are going to walk here. And it's hard to ha have them envision that. But all the evidence is just the contrary, that it actually boosts business. It boosts foot traffic, obviously cuts carbon emissions and all kinds of other things. So, you know. It's a, it, I think it's a difficult question to have in the in the local sense, but yeah. at the same time, you've got to have these conversations, and we it's, it would behoove us to look at the evidence of how it impacts business, especially as a city like Montpelier might be rethinking what it looks like in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And you know, I think Church Street in Burlington is an example of where you took a number of blocks and decided, hey, this is going to be for foot traffic. And you know what? There's a ton of great foot traffic out there. Yeah. You know, uh, people are fascinated by this issue, and we're going to go to the phones. Joe in Northfield, you're on the show with Andrew Savage. Welcome. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Uh, first of all, my uh, condolences to the passing of Ken Squire. Thank um, you. Good, good man. Anyway, um, my problem with all these electric bikes and electric cars and electric this and electric that is that these roads that we drive on are in terrible shape. I mean, a lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Electric cars, when you plug that in, they don't pay a gas tax. They don't pay to maintain the roads. These people that ride bikes, and I have nothing against anybody who wants to ride a bike, none whatsoever. But my opinion is they should register them like a car. They should pay to be on these roads. We have to build bike lanes for bikes. They should pay for that somewhere, some way. Be it a mileage tax or be it whatever. I, I don't think they should be able to just have bike lanes built on these roads to the tune of millions of dollars and not have to pay for it. I pay a registration fee to drive my car. Every time I fill up the fuel, I pay a tax to fill up, you know, on the fuel that I buy. That goes to the roads. I have no problem with that. But I don't think anybody else, just because they ride a bike or drive an electric car, should get a free pass on that because the guy that's Joe, you beat me. You beat me to the punch. That's the next question I wanted to ask. So thank you for the call. Feel free to stay on and listen if you want. But Andrew, what's the answer to that? Yeah, thanks, Joe. And, um, you know, I think you have a good point. And I, you know, I actually drive an electric car and I think it's a great 
way of getting around. It's a, it's far far better, you know, drive than the traditional gas cars that I've driven for my pre- previously in my life. I think eventually, and the timing is probably now-ish that you're going to have to figure out how to adjust um, who pays and how they pay because. As electric cars become 10, 20, 30, 50, 80%, 100% of uh, the automobiles out there, you're going to have to find a way to pay for the infrastructure to help us get around. Now, I think that with bikes, the general public good that is produced by having people off the road, not polluting, getting out of congestion, you know, reducing the amount of traffic. Look, I think, you know, these are things that, you know, aren't enormously costly to invest in when you look at the super highways that we have and the major infrastructure projects that we have and enormous bridges that have to be um, rebuilt, like on 89 right now. Like that's major, major, major dollars compared to the very small amount of of, of impact and um, costs that bikers, for example, might have on the side of the of the highway. I think the most important thing is that as we rethink these infrastructure projects, as we're investing in new infrastructure that we're incorporating, we're incorporating the future of transportation, lighter speed, lower speed transportation options um, into into our infrastructure decisions and our investments. I had a a guest on this show from Wales who is the commissioner of future generations. And interesting job. <laughs> They created it in 2015. She represents the unborn. And she said that uh, when the government of Wales wanted to build a new motorway, which she called it, they had to come through her and she marshaled the evidence and they decided not to build the motorway and build a bunch of bike lanes and public transportation instead. I guess my question to you is why is Europe so different than America on this scale? I mean bikes – E-bikes, scooters in Europe are everywhere. Everyone's doing it. They've been doing it for a century on bikes, and yet we are still just tied to the automobile uh, in in a way that is just so powerful. Yeah. I mean, and I think it is worth acknowledging the real stark difference between more rural areas like Vermont and yeah. major cities, right? Yeah. Just we're talking in our mind now about the, these major cities and in the U.S. versus Europe. I think it's a cultural thing. It's a population density thing. You have much denser cities in Europe, which helps facilitate the use of public transport, the the use of lower speed transportation options, micro mobility, bike scooters, and it, it, it's a philosophy and outlook. And I think you know we really invested in the suburbs in the United States, which yeah. really ingrained and it's a land use thing. Yeah, it yeah. really made it so that cars were a critical necessity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the ghost of Robert Moses in New York and uh, building the suburbs post World War II America. Yeah, fascinating. Let's go to the phones and talk to Greg Titus. Uh, let's go to the phones and talk to Jesse in Plainfield. Jesse, you're on the line. Hi, how are you? We're good. How you doing? Good. I'm not too bad. Hey, first of all, I wanted to express my condolences to the Squire family. Thank you. Um, yep. Um, been a long-time listener. Uh, anyway, so my my question is kind of a question and a statement uh, in one. A year or so ago, I was reading an article about a scooter startup 
I believe it was in Asia somewhere, but that really doesn't matter. They were trying to address the uh, the the charging of these scooters that they were, you know, manufacturing. And their take on the the charging aspect or the energy aspect was instead of bringing the scooter to the location in which they get charged, what they were bringing the energy to the scooter. And I thought, well, that's a really great idea. You know, kind of eliminates an outside step of somebody having to, I don't, for lack of a better term, bring it to an outlet. And so that got me to thinking, you know, that kind of crosses over maybe into a, to to electric cars. You know, one of the beauties, not I shouldn't say there's a beauty, but the convenience of a gas station is, you know, when my pickup's on E, I, I pull over, I put 20 or 30 gallons in, and I have another 300 miles of, of uh, 300 miles to go. I can go anywhere, you know, so to speak. And I thought, well, you know, with E, with electric cars, the, the charging aspect, the time in which it takes to charge, you know, say overnight or, you know, four to five hours is kind of um, inconvenient, so to speak. So I was wondering how this, you know, bringing the energy to the car, you know, say at a gas station or bringing the energy to a scooter might kind of, um, you know, might kind of, you know, make these things more popular, you know, e-scooters, e-bikes and e-cars. Uh, I understand there'd be, have to be a lot of homogenization of battery technology between car manufacturers, but I know I, I feel like it would be um, more appealing to consumers. Anyway, I'll, I'll listen to your comments off the air. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Yeah, it's a great, great question and, and comment there. So we actually do a hybrid of, of what was just mentioned on the call. We actually, instead of bringing the scooters back to warehouses to charge them, which as the caller acknowledged is kind of a waste and pretty intensive, we actually introduced a swappable battle, battery model where we can actually charge a whole bank of batteries, go out with a small vehicle, and then pop out a battery and install it into the bike or the scooter and they're interchangeable. So it doesn't matter if we're putting it in a bike or a scooter. And so that we've found to be the most efficient way of getting a fully charged battery into uh, our, our vehicles. And I think the broader question of, is there an opportunity to sort of rethink how we charge electric cars or other modes of transportation? I think there are Absolutely is. And actually, in California, we're piloting exactly what this caller uh, suggested for our e-vans that, that we use for our operations, where we actually have what we call charging as a service show up at a warehouse and rapid charge a van, which is cheaper than installing the level three rapid charging in the warehouse. So I think you're, you will start to see more of that, particularly for fleets. I think for individual auto owners, most people, 99% of the time, it takes you about three seconds to charge your car, fill up your car. And here's why I say that. I go to the garage, I unclip the, the plug and I plug it into the side of the car and then I walk away and go make dinner or go put the kids to bed, et cetera, and it charges overnight. Like that actually is much, much faster. Yeah. Like we're thinking about it from the filling up a gas car perspective, but actually most people are charging other than whether they're on a road trip on the occasional road trip, and if you have kids, you know you try to make those occasional. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, most of the time you're just plugging in overnight, and actually it could be a slower charge because you're sitting. It's sitting there eight, nine, ten, twelve hours, and you get the. You can easily, even on a slower speed charger, get the fifty average of fifty miles a day that 
most people need, but you know, easily on a faster charger that most people have in their garages, it works just fine. So I think you will see innovations like char- charging coming to vehicles. Um, I think we're going to see a whole range of things from slow to fast just to meet the various needs of people when they have them. Mary in Randolph Center, welcome to the show. Good to have you back. Well, good morning. It's great to be here on a Friday. So I had a recent experience electric bike. I was visiting family in New Jersey. Uh, my brother lives right over the bridge from Long Beach Island. Uh, we jumped on the bikes. I had never done it. I was a little intimidated because, you know, they're heavier, they're different. They've got these buttons and this, that, and the But we cruised over the bridge, um, cruised around the island, uh, made a couple stops, and then cruised back to his house. I think we did about 11 miles, something like that. And <laughs> we didn't break a sweat. It was really delightful. Um, I would love to have one up here. They are pricey, but um, I would totally tell people, go get yourself a bike. I think it's great that uh, couple there uh, near Montpelier is uh, running into Montpelier. My brother uses it. He goes to the grocery store. He'll run down to the post office, and it's he loves it, and he's lost some weight, and he's in better shape. Mary, thanks. Um, Andrew, in the short time we have left, we could talk about this for hours. Where's this going to be in 10, 15, 20 years? What's it going to look like? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Mary's point is such a good one that I think as more people realize how great e-mobility is across the board, it's just better. I mean, and I think you're just going to see a mass proliferation of e-bikes, e-cars, et cetera. I mean, I pick up the kids almost any time I can using an e-bike with a little, you know, you've seen them in the little cargo seats on the back where you can fit two kids. And they love it. I love it. We get fresh air. And I just think you're going to see more and more of that. And we'll have a cleaner environment because about 25% of our carbon emissions right now come from personal cars. And we can do a lot better than that. Is it possible in one minute? Sorry to do this to you. I should say not personal cars, 25% from transportation, of which the majority is personal cars. Is it possible that land use patterns will can change to adapt to the e-mobility thing? Like I live five miles from from Montpelier. Uh, I can see how I would want to move closer to town. Yeah. And be on a scooter or a bike. Yeah, I think absolutely. Like we were talking about earlier, if you can take away, you know, parking spots and put housing there, that's land use changes right there. People knowing that they could be within two or three miles of a city or work or school and know they could still bike, that could be an appealing thing down the line. Well, we have to go. We we didn't talk about politics, your time with Peter Welch. We didn't talk about... U32, uh, cross-country skiing. I got an earful off-air, just so you know. (laughs) But uh, but we're going to have you back. Um, Andrew Savage of of Lime, thank you. Uh, It's fun talking about the future. Thanks so much. Great to be on. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a break. I'm coming back with Bob Nay from Washington, D.C. in a few seconds. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to the friendly pioneer, WDEV. That was fun. Awesome.